There's a very good chance I may keep you for quite a while this morning. Don't say that by way of apology, just in case you've got a roast in the oven. And, uh, it might be well done, but uh, we don't endeavor to be long for the sake of being long, but sometimes uh, I, I endeavor to bring what I feel the Lord wants me to bring. I don't look at a particular time frame. I'm not famous for being long-winded, but every once in a while I do go a bit long just to keep you guessing. Amen. So everybody comfortable. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are continuing in our series of lessons simply titled Lessons from Grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your presence that's here. Thank you, Lord, for these faithful people that are in your house. Pray, Lord, as you open your word that it would do, Lord, what you desire it to do, Lord, that your will would be accomplished in your way. Lord God, you would have your way, Lord Jesus, we pray. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. In lesson one of this series, which was two Sundays ago, uh, we laid a platform establishing that it is by grace that we are saved. And if you were here on Wednesday night, we spoke, one of the things that we spoke about on Wednesday night was the idea of provenient grace, or in other words, grace that is operating in us and on us before we ever consciously made a decision to respond to the gospel. And nearly every one of us can look back in our lives and see the hand of God retrospectively when at that time we were ignorant of it and how grace was, was working and uh, preparing us for that opportunity to respond to the gospel. And grace... The more you look at it and try to grasp it, grace really is amazing. It's not just an old hymn. The grace of God is incredible. It's unmerited. It is something that without which we would have no hope this morning. But too often grace is misinterpreted as a license to excuse ungodly conduct of people who claim to be Christians saying that grace covers everything, that it's as if it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. That because of the grace of God, what I do is not particularly important and how I live is not crucial, but rather the grace of God just covers all things. Unfortunately, that's not biblically accurate. And uh, we, we certainly need to remember that it is not our job to be judged during executioner of our brother or sister or anybody else. That's the Lord's responsibility. And the Bible does give us directions for how to approach a brother or sister if there is a need in their lives for correction. And if you read Galatians 6 and 1, you'll talk, it reads of how if a man is overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself. So there is a place for going to a brother or a sister, but there is also a way to do it. But we live in a society that has become so... The word, the expression that is used, which is, accurate, is in actual fact inaccurate, is political correctness of how we are so concerned of offending anybody that we won't say anything about anyone or any lifestyle. And I do not believe that our goal should ever be to offend. 
I believe that all people, regardless of life, race, gender, whatever, should be treated with respect and treated as we would have ourselves to be treated. But we must be careful that in the church of the living God that this mentality does not seep in amongst us to a place that we are afraid to call sin, sin. That we are afraid to preach the word without being worried of who we might offend or whose toes we might tread on. And again, for the sake of being repetitious, offense should never be the goal. If we, some people can, can use the word of God like a club, and that's not necessarily God's will. We should never set out to offend, but there are times that the Bible makes it clear that God's word will cut, that it will pierce, that it will divide, that it will reveal the heart. And those things are not always pleasant, but they are most definitely necessary. And so we are in an environment where grace is abused and misunderstood, but our opening text or our platform text in Titus tells us that it is in fact grace that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. And so for the next three Sunday mornings, I'm going to spend some time covering some areas. It won't be exhaustive. I'll have to spend a lot more Sunday mornings. But that will help us to do the things that grace teaches us to do. Amen. And the first one and possibly possibly the largest challenge that all of us face as believers is overcoming our flesh, overcoming the sinful nature that is resident within us. Amen. Our natural lives are a constant thing. We don't always think about it, but we're always inhaling, exhaling. We're living, we're moving, we're breathing, we eat, we drink. Our bodies convert those things into various forms of fuel that contribute towards the growth and structure of our bodies, that contribute towards our mental capacity and the function of our brain, that contribute towards our body's ability to heal, to repair, and to regenerate. And life, until we die, never really stops. Even when we're asleep, there are processes taking place. There are things that are happening in this natural body that, even though it's not always visible, you look at some people, particularly when they sleep, they look like they're dead. But there is something going on there. There's function, there is process, there are things happening in our bodies as a product of the inhaling and the exhaling and the eating and the drinking and the various things that we've added or subtracted from our lives. It's constantly happening. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that the part of us that is soul and spirit is separate from that which is physical. But the reality is they are very closely woven together. Your natural physical life and your spiritual life cannot be separated. And when we are born again, a new life begins. And this new life happens through a process where we close the door on an old life and through obedience by faith to God's Word, we begin a new life. The Bible tells us that when we repent and that we turn from sin, there is a parallel that the Scripture gives us very clearly between Jesus dying on the cross and what should happen in our lives when we repent and we turn from sin. We die to sin. And this is an excellent comparison and description of what happens 
But we know that while there needs to be a turning away from the old life that is not flexible, that is required by God, that sinful human nature does not leave us when we are born again. In fact, if we're honest this morning, it endeavors to continually pull us back to former habits, lifestyles, and practices. And so what is happening to us every single day is that there are two lives, if I can put it that way, that we must choose between. There is an old man and there is a new man. And our default setting, and I know a lot of this is is elementary for some of us, but it's important to go over some of this from time to time. Our default setting, or in other words, what happens when we do nothing, when there's no action, when there's no direction, no motivation, no inspiration, our default setting, the thing that we will return to is the old sinful man. Spiritual inactivity will always return you to your carnal nature. You cannot be spiritual and be successful spiritually through being passive. It will not happen. Your default setting is sin. So when I do nothing, when I am not actively pursuing God in my life daily, I will return to my default setting, which is the sinful nature of mankind. And so the question we have to ask is, what is it in our old life that really dies when we repent. When I'm buried with Him in baptism in Jesus' name, and I'm filled with the Holy Ghost, and we talk about that dying, what is it that dies? After all, I'm still tempted. I still have a struggle. I'm still flawed. It is still easier for me to sin than not to sin. Now, you may be more spiritual, and you may think poorly of me because I make that statement, But in this natural man, it is easier for me to sin than not to sin because that is my default setting and my default structure. The thing that dies when we are born again is the dominion or the control that sin has over us. When we are born again of water and spirit, it introduces a new life that includes the power to resist, to refuse sin, and to please God. Does not take away human nature, does not take away my natural inclination towards sin, but it introduces an ability, a supernatural ability to say, no, I do not want to do that anymore. I want to please God. That dominion is broken. That is something that we did not have before. Before we were born again, we did not have that power. Some of you may have been strong enough in your will to change your habits, to change some things about your lives, to do certain things, but you could not overcome sin through your natural strength. Amen. Galatians 5 and 17 lets us know that these two lives, if I will use that word, one flesh and one spirit, are in conflict. They oppose one another. They cannot coexist. They cannot live together. You cannot serve two masters, the Bible says. So if my default setting is sinful flesh, then the only way I can successfully live for God is to have a consistent, that's an important word. The Bible uses the word diligent, which has the same kind of meaning. A consistent suppression, starvation, if you like, and crucifying of the old man 
But there's a comma there, not a full stop, because those things must be combined with a feeding, a strengthening, and a growing of the spiritual new man. It's important the two are there. Simply starving your sinful nature will not make you godly. It requires an active feeding and strengthening and growing of that spiritual man. And so just as our natural bodies are constantly living, so are our spiritual lives. We are constantly inhaling, exhaling, taking things in, hopefully putting some things out at the same time. You cannot defeat sin by simply writing a list of the things that you shouldn't do and trying to stop doing them. Removing habits or changing conduct will not achieve godliness or righteousness. Might make you healthier, might make you better at your job, might make some of your natural relationships improve. Those things are possible in a limited sense. But simply saying these are the things I don't do does not make me godly, does not make me righteous. A strong, successful spiritual life is not achieved by the things you do not do. And too many people approach their relationship with God from the position of, I don't do certain things because I have a relationship with God. The better approach or the better understanding of that is, I have a relationship with God, therefore I don't do certain things. And there's a difference between the two. There's a difference between those two. Amen. Our new life must replace our old life. They cannot coexist. 1 John 4 and 4 says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Same epistle, chapter 5 and verse 4, says, Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. I'm going to hammer some points this morning so you can't go home and say he didn't say that. But your flesh is never passive. It is never on holiday. It doesn't take a day off. Your sinful nature is always active. It's as active as you will allow it to be. It is drawn to sin like a moth is drawn to a flame. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that it's not so much sin that's the actual problem, but it's the sinful nature we have that is drawn to sin like a magnet. If there was no attraction, sin wouldn't be an issue. But there's something in us that draws us to these things and we have to make a decision which life are we going to live there's a, a proverb and i don't like to use cliches and expressions too often but i think it's a an, a a native american indian proverb about two dogs or two wolves in a fight and an old man is asked which dog will win the fight which wolf will win the fight and the simple answer was the one that you feed the one that is fed will be stronger and will win the battle and it's exactly the same spiritually. Whichever life you feed will be stronger than the other one. You cannot exterminate. I wish, I wish there was a chapter somewhere in this book that gave me the five simple steps to exterminating your sinful nature. I wish it was there. I wish I could take that thing and hold it underwater long enough and drown it. You can, but unfortunately the consequences of that are fairly severe. You cannot exterminate your sinful nature. I wish that we could, but we can't. Amen. And so we have to learn how to overcome our flesh. If I cannot get rid of it, 
but God wants me to overcome and be victorious, I need to know how to do that. I need to know how to overcome my flesh. See, the car that you came to church in this morning, I think most of us came in some sort of a car, maybe a bus or a motorbike or who knows what you came in, but that vehicle does not have the ability in its physical structure to move by itself. Most of us are not worried about our cars not being there when we go out after the service this morning because your car will not just go home on its own. Because, why? Because gravity is in play. Friction is in play. Other natural forces stop that thing from moving away. And if you park it on a hill and leave it in neutral and leave your handbrake off, then it may move. But again, it's not doing it by itself. It's gravity that's causing that to happen. But that motionless vehicle that, that will not do anything because of the forces that are applied to it, when I start the engine on my car and fuel is pumped into the cylinders, and I'm not a mechanic or I don't know much about cars at all, but I know that there is explosions that take place, what we call combustion. And that explosion produces a force which provides an energy source so that car now is able to move because one force is added that is able to overcome the existing forces. When you start the engine of your car, gravity doesn't vanish. Friction doesn't vanish. Steep hills don't vanish. But there's something that is powerful under the hood of that car that is strong enough to overcome the other forces. It is much the same in us spiritually. We have the power of the Spirit of God in us that is greater than he that is in the world that causes us to be able to overcome, but only when it is active. Because if I take my car and head down to the Mitchell Freeway and get up to 100 kilometers an hour and then put it in neutral and turn the engine off in a certain distance, and it's been far too long since I did physics at school to work it out, but in a certain distance my vehicle will come to a stop because the forces that have always been there become the dominant force because I have removed the other source of power. As long as I've got fuel in the tank, at least for a certain point in time, I can continue to drive in a fashion that overcomes natural forces. That's a simple example, but it's a good parallel of what happens spiritually. If you turn your motor off, you submit yourself back to those things that used to dictate and control your life. But the Lord said, you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me. Amen. Bless the Lord. Let's take our Bibles and look at some scripture. We'll go to Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 4, and Colossians chapter 3. I want you to keep those because we're going to come back to them a little later on. Galatians 5, Ephesians 4, and Colossians 3. I've even given them to you in biblical order. That's how considerate I am. It's very important that we understand. We, I've mentioned how simply not doing some things doesn't make us righteous. But that does not remove the, the fact that there are things that simply should not be a part of a Christian's life. Scripture is very clear about that. We're going to read some of this this morning. Galatians 5 and 19 says, Now the works of the flesh, in other words, 
the things that you and I produce in our natural sinful state are manifest or they're revealed, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, they, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not a nice list, but whether you're willing to acknowledge it or not, the capacity of all of those things is in your flesh, and it's in mine. But it's very clear that those things will keep us out of the kingdom of God. Jumping across to Ephesians 4. Keep Galatians 5 there if you can, if you've got bookmarks or pencils or fingers or whatever. Ephesians 4 and verse 25 says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Again, instruction about things that should not be in the church. Colossians chapter 3. And verse 8 says, But now ye also put off, or get rid of, all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Now, there's other passages as well, but I think we get the message. The passages give us lists of things that, if they are a part of our lives, they will keep us from going to heaven. That's as straight as we can put it. If these things are in us, we will not enter the kingdom of God. And it's important we have to understand as Christians that there is no place for sin in our relationship with God. We know and we preach about grace and we preach about forgiveness and we preach about the battles that we face and how God will help us and all that is true. We should never feel like if we, if we make a mistake or we fall into error that God will abandon us because he will not. But we've got to be careful that in the midst of preaching about grace and mercy and forgiveness and all the things that God can do that we don't misinterpret that to understand that our sin does not matter. The Bible says the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And so grace is not an opportunity to ignore sin, but grace is an opportunity to get redemption from sin. And there is no room in our lives as Christians for sin. Now, if we're sitting here being honest this morning, we probably think, well, I might as well not come back to church because my life isn't perfect. That's not what we're talking about. We are striving for perfection. We are complete in Him. But when there is an error, when there is a sin, when we do make a mistake, we need to make it right, not overlook it. We need to be doing what we can to live without sin. Jesus said that we can be overcomers. 
He's looking for overcomers. It cannot happen naturally. It happens supernaturally. And it would benefit all of us to go through these passages we just read and really look at what these words mean and allow the Word of God to convict us and bring us to repentance. Because when you actually take some time and look at some of those words, you might find some things that you connect with naturally. And we don't like that thought, but they're there for a reason. They're written to the church for a reason. And I believe that one of the biggest challenges that we face in living an overcoming life as Christians is honesty. Not being truthful with our brothers and sisters, being honest with ourselves, being willing to let the Word of God reveal our shortcomings and be honest enough to say, Lord, I need to repent. I need you to change me. The challenge is that sometimes there are works of our flesh that we still enjoy. And so we don't want to be honest about them because we still find some pleasure in some of those things. And we deceive ourselves by being dishonest with ourselves and we think that everything is sweet. But we need to go back to the Word of God and to let it search our hearts. You know, you can read those passages and you can dismiss some of those things very quickly. Let's take one that's easy to look at without spending a lot of time. Drunkenness. No, we don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with drunkenness. I've never been drunk in my life. But drunkenness is not just about alcohol. The underlying principle of the verse and the scripture is not specifically focused upon a liquid, but rather it's focused upon intoxication. Intoxication comes in a variety of forms, not just through alcoholic beverages or illicit drugs or the abuse of legal drugs, whichever we want to consider. Intoxication comes... In many ways, our emotions, unchecked, can be intoxicating. Powerful, unrestrained emotion can impair your judgment as much as alcohol. When, we, uh, when somebody is affected by alcohol, the biggest concern is their impaired judgment. That's why they don't want you to drive a car while you're under the influence of alcohol. It's the impaired judgment. It's the removal of, of inhibitions. It's all of the things that we worry about happening to people when their judgment is impaired. Well, you may never take a drink in your life, but if you ride the emotional roller coaster of life without restraint, your judgment can be impaired just as easily. It's just as intoxicating. I've seen people live their lives without any checks and balances and their emotions take them up and down, and they may have never had a glass of anything, but their judgment is just as impaired. Our attitudes can impair our judgment. Our views of ourselves and our views of others can impair our judgment. You see, drunkenness is not, well, that's just easy. I haven't had a beer, so I can cross that one off the list. We can be intoxicated by a variety of things. We need to be very, very careful. Amen. God forbid that as a church we become soft on sin. I know I'm probably a little strong this morning, but this is what I'm feeling from the Lord. So having said all of that, we've established those things cannot be in our lives. You will never get to heaven simply by the things that you do not do. You will never get there just by saying, I didn't do this and I didn't do that. Because the change 
that Jesus wants to bring into our lives. This is important this morning. The change that the Lord wants to bring doesn't just happen at the level of our actions. It happens at the level of our nature. He doesn't just want us not to do. He wants us not to be. There's a difference between the two. God wants to change us at the level of our nature, the way that we think, the way that we respond, the people that we are. And so these lists that we've just been through in the scripts that are not very happy reading should not be written in isolation or or read in isolation just to be used as checklists. Because if you'll go back to Galatians chapter 5, if you've still got a finger in there, we read the, the verses, what did we read? We read 19 to 21. But if you'll read verse 16, it says, This I say, then walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And you jump past the nasty stuff we read to verse 22, and it says, but, this is after it lists the works of the flesh, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh, with the affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Then if you jump across to Ephesians chapter 4, where we read some unpleasant things as well, you'll see in verse 20, it says, But ye have not so learned Christ. That's a really interesting verse. It doesn't talk about learning knowledge. It talks about learning a person. There's more to it than just knowledge. Then verse 21 says, If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. There's no full stop there. There's a, well, in my Bible, there's a semicolon. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And then jump across to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3 and 10 says, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all in all. Put on, therefore... As the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness or completeness. So these same passages that we read about that have all these lists of all these works of the flesh, things we should get rid of, things that don't belong in the church. The same passages speak about something happening at a much deeper level than just your actions. There's something going on there. There's a renewing or a making new of our minds or changing the way that we think. It's more than just your actions. It's happening at a deeper level. There's also in that last verse we read in Colossians, there's a love that is sacrificial. That is the glue that sticks us together. It's the bond of perfectness. And more on that next week. Amen. There's fruit that we read about from Galatians 5 
And we all understand that fruit can only be produced by what is happening under the surface. So yes, there are all these things that should not be in our lives, but that approach is not simply this is the list of thou shalt nots. But rather it's a product of when we are in a relationship with God and He is changing us and transforming us, we should not be involved in those things and we should also be able to overcome those things more successfully as time goes by and we become stronger in the Lord. We have to do more. Don't misunderstand this statement. We have to do more than simply pray and read His Word. Now, that might sound contradictory because we're always talking about praying and reading His Word. But we have to let His nature change who we are. There's more than just going through motions. You know, if you feed the flesh all week, you feed it all week with ungodly speech, ungodly influences, ungodly entertainment, serving yourself above everybody else or everything else, you cannot think that five or ten minutes at an altar on a Sunday morning is going to make that all good. Now, you may receive forgiveness for things you've done during the week, but it's not going to make the week that follows victorious and overcoming just by visiting an altar on a Sunday morning. There has to be something. Your experience at an altar is important, and I would encourage you to come to the altar, to have an experience with God. There are so many of us that can talk about the things that God did while we were at an altar. When you come to an altar, pray until you touch God. Just getting off track for a little bit here, but sometimes people come to an altar and they just stay long enough until the pastor prays for them and they go and sit down. We all like the pastor to pray for us. I understand that. I did when I was a kid too. But your needs are not going to be met at the altar by your pastor. They're met by God. And so if you come to the altar with a need, stay there until you touch God. If, you, if the Lord's moving, we'll try our best not to close in prayer too quickly. But I've seen people stay at an altar beyond the end of a service because they needed to get a hold of God. But no matter how incredible your altar experience is, and no matter what you get forgiveness for at the altar, if it is not coupled together with a daily relationship with God on the weekdays, you can spell that two ways, the days you're not in the house of God, Monday through Saturdays, you will return to serving sin and being dominated by your flesh. Find yourself back in the house of God the following Sunday needing to come to the altar again because you've got junk in your life. Because all through the week you've been feeding one man and you pull the other man out of the closet and dust him off for Sunday morning. Doesn't work. Will not make you an overcomer. Amen. So when I say we shouldn't just simply pray, we need to understand what's supposed to happen when we pray and what's supposed to happen with the Word of God. When we pray, we should worship God. Amen. You should enter His presence with worship. You should bring your needs and your petitions to the Lord. Amen. You should pray for your family. You should pray for your church. You should pray for your city. And I'm happy to say you should pray for your pastor. But you also need to allow the Holy Ghost to lead you as you pray, to guide you as you pray. How does that happen? Well, I believe that the Spirit of God can lead us when we're praying in our own language. I deliberately didn't say English because English isn't some of your first languages. And you should pray in whatever language you're comfortable with. 
The great thing about God is he doesn't need Google Translate. He's got that covered. Whatever language you go with, he's more fluent than you are. So you can, the Lord's Spirit can guide us when we pray in our own language. But as the Spirit of God moves on us, we should allow the Spirit to lead us into praying in tongues. Why is that important? Why is that important? Go to the book of Romans chapter 8 with me. And while you're finding that, let me make something, let me clarify something. When you receive the Holy Ghost and you speak in other tongues for the first time, you do not receive the gift of tongues. You hear that sometimes amongst Christian circles. When I was born again, I received the gift of tongues. Speaking in tongues when you receive the Holy Ghost is the initial evidence that you have received it. The gift of tongues is one of the gifts of the Spirit that the Lord distributes as He sees fit to people after they receive the Holy Ghost. So we need to understand there is a difference between the two. Why is it important that I pray in tongues as the Holy Ghost moves on me? Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. It says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Now we need to understand that word infirmities there is not talking about your sicknesses. It's talking about your weaknesses, your human struggles. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. What does that mean? We forgot how to speak? No, it means sometimes our thinking, our understanding, doesn't have clarity according to the will of God. We don't know the things we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now you don't need to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 14 and 14 to 15, Paul said, For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. And Jude chapter 1 and verse 20 says, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Now there's a few layers of what's going on here, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. And if you have a better understanding of it, you're welcome to share that with me afterwards. But it, the Bible talks in Romans 8 and 26 about the Spirit making intercession. Sometimes that's a word that we hear in Christian circles and people go, ooh, it's this big spiritual concept. And it is. But intercession is basically God moving on us by His Spirit to stand in the gap for somebody. To, to carry a situation or a circumstance or a person to the Lord by the Holy Ghost that they may not be able to carry, that they may not understand what is going on, or they may need somebody to carry it with them. And intercession is powerful, and I believe that there are people that the Lord moves on that through that uh, avenue, if you like, specifically in people that are given to that kind of ministry, but it is something that should be in all of our lives in various capacities. If you have the Holy Ghost and the Spirit of God moves on you, there are times that the Spirit of God will lead you to intercede for somebody or something. Now, there are times that that intercession is at a depth with the, of, and a weight, if you like, of what we're feeling with the Spirit, that we see what the Apostle Paul said, that it's with groanings that cannot be uttered. 
It's a heavy experience. Sometimes there's not even words that you're able to form because of the weight of what the Spirit of God is doing in us. And those things happen. But there are times also when we do, we are led by the Spirit in prayer and the Lord moves through us to pray in other tongues. Now, the important thing is that it's the Spirit of God that causes that. Not us just thinking that's how we... I don't believe in... This is my opinion. I may not be able to back it up completely so you can disregard it. But I don't believe that you should pray only in other tongues. I believe you need to pray in the language that you're familiar with and as the Spirit leads because we present things to the Lord. But there are times that the Spirit of God moves on us and we pray in other tongues. And as Paul said, our understanding is unfruitful in the sense that we do not understand what we are saying. But your understanding is not always the first priority. The priority is what is God's will? What does God want to come to pass? What is it that God wants to see in my life and in the situations that I'm praying for? And when sometimes when the Spirit of God moves on you and you pray in other tongues, what effectively is happening is God is just politely saying, would you please move out of the way and let me handle this? Because there are times that we do not know what we should pray for. We do not know the will of God. And I will go as far as to say there are needs that we have in our lives spiritually that we will not pray for unless it's by the Holy Ghost because we're ignorant of them. But as He prays through us, because He's the one that searches the hearts. That's what it says. He's the one that searches the hearts. He's the one that knoweth the mind of God. And so he is the one that directs and guides by his spirit. And while my understanding may not completely know what's going on, if it's the spirit of God moving on us, we know that he's in control and that his will is the one that's being addressed here through the process of prayer. Amen. And so it is very important that we understand that when we pray in the Spirit, it's not some far out spooky thing, but we are presenting ourselves to God in a submitted fashion and at a level of transparency that we would not achieve in our own understanding. Amen. Is that all right? Anybody want to take me out and stone me? Are we okay? We're all still in the book. Amen. Bless the Lord. But also when we pray, We need to pray according to Scripture. If we are ignorant of the Word of God and we pray in a fashion that is contrary to the Word of God, that prayer is going nowhere. I I had a man just recently, and don't laugh at this, I'm not saying this to, to mock, but he told me that he prays for Lucifer that the Lord would give him another chance. Now I said to him, not going to happen because it's in the book. The Bible says he's done, he's finished, he's judged. Eternity for him is already settled. And so you can pray that all day, but if it's contrary to Scripture, it's not going to happen. And so we, that's another reason why we need to know the Word of God. Because no matter how sincere you are, if you're praying against the Word of God, it's a long journey to nowhere. That's what's going to happen. Amen. Bless the Lord. My goodness, how many more pages of notes have I got? Let's talk a little bit about the Word of God. This is not conclusive or exhaustive today. Obviously, when we talk about overcoming and living a victorious, successful spiritual life, you've got to get back to prayer and the Word. 
that's where it all begins. And we'll deal with some other things in weeks to come. But the question I want to ask you this morning is, what do you do with the Word of God? What do you do with it? Strange question, perhaps. I believe that daily reading is good as a discipline. And if you have a, a daily reading plan or a Bible that's broken up into daily readings, I believe there's nothing wrong with that. I have. My wife and I both use daily readers, and I find it beneficial, if at the very least, for the sake of spiritual discipline. But that's not really where growth and change and strength come from when it comes to the Word. It's what we do with the Word of God. It's what we do with it. Let's turn to James chapter 1. This may be the last scripture I get you to turn to. may not be the last one I reference, but... You know, we, we talk a lot, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we talk a lot, we preach a lot about going through trials, tribulations, hard times, and how the Lord will bring us through and His faith. And all those things are true. But you know, everything in your life that happens is not a trial. The trial of your faith is something that God allows. There are other things that are just a consequence of your choice. We make choices that have consequences. And we make a bad decision, we go, well, I'm going through a trial. No, you're suffering the consequences of a choice you made. It's not the same thing. But it seems like we can fall into the trap of, well, everything bad that happens is a trial. No, sometimes we're just human, we make dumb choices. And we go through some. And the Lord is merciful, and He helps us get back on track. But I think sometimes we can be guilty of painting a worse picture than there really is. Amen. James chapter 1 and verse 21 says, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. That word naughtiness carries a lot more weight than we would use. It's not talking about small children. It's talking about wickedness. And superfluity is talking about excess. And receive them with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves for if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work this man shall be blessed in his deed amen we enjoy good preaching amen who enjoys good preaching I enjoy good preaching. But I'm not convinced that enjoyment is the primary purpose of the preaching of God's Word. We have sort of created a little bit of a culture where we enjoy good preaching, but I don't find anywhere in the Scripture that preaching is given for our enjoyment. And so we've got to be careful and take a step back and go, so what is it really about? What is the purpose of preaching? And what is good preaching? When we say, oh, I enjoy good preaching, I like brother so-and-so, or I like sister so-and-so, or, or whoever it might be that is the one that you like, good preaching, from a biblical perspective, brings change. That's what it's designed to do. Now, don't take this as a statement of pride. I know that I can preach okay. And that's not pride because I know what God's done. I know where he brought me from. It's all him. 
Trust me, my wife will tell you. Well, hopefully she won't. But, but if all is that is achieved when I preach is that people enjoy the preaching, then am I really preaching well? What does God want to achieve in us through His Word? Amen. Preaching needs to bring change. James said that we should receive the engrafted Word. That Word talks about something that is taken into us. It's absorbed. It's integrated. It's applied. So when you hear the preaching of the Word, when you read the Word of God... Are you looking for application? Or do we come to church, enjoy the presence of God, feel blessed, encouraged, strengthened, love our church, so we should, but don't take something away? Because if the preaching of God's Word doesn't find a way into our hearts and our spirits and find an application or do something, then it's failing. And it's not the Word's fault. The Word's the same. The Word hasn't changed. The Word will always do what it can do if we let it. And so when you hear preaching and teaching, we need to always be looking to say, God, how can I take this lesson, this sermon, this testimony, whatever it is, and apply it to my life to bring about the change at the level of my nature so that I will become more that you want me to become, and I will overcome my sinful humanity. And if we're not doing that, we need to stop and take stock and ask ourselves, why not? Could it be that we've just become accustomed to enjoying good preaching and not allowing or causing that preaching to penetrate our hearts? When somebody preaches to us, whether it's me as your pastor or one of our other brethren in ministry or visiting ministry, if we come just to be blessed, then we are really just skimming the surface of what God wants to achieve. Because God loves us and He wants to bless us, but more than that, He wants to transform us. And so when, when we preach, if you just listen and enjoy and go out, it's not really fulfilling the will of God. But if you... Hear the Word of God. And like James said, be like somebody that looks in the mirror. There's a lot of people I see in society that obviously looked in the mirror and went out and forgot what they look like. But, scripturally speaking, if we put ourselves up front with the Word of God and bring in that honesty that I spoke about before and say, God, I'm not reaching the mark and take His Word and say, Lord, and take what we have been taught or preached because the Bible says that we are saved by the foolishness of preaching. And if we will take that with us to that place of prayer and say, the Lord, and say, Lord, this is what my pastor or whoever it was preached this week, help me to integrate that into who I am and to become what you want me to be, we will achieve more of what God wants us to achieve. And as apostolics, Pentecostals, it's very easy to slip into being a part of a culture. We enjoy good preaching. We say amen. We come to an altar. We get touched. We get blessed. But we are not changed. And the Lord wants to 
change us. He wants His Word to change us. We've got to be looking for application. Every time you come to church, you need to say, Lord, help me to take something from this message that I can apply. You know, even if we're teaching, if we, you might say, well, if you teach on the Godhead and who Jesus is, how do I apply that to my life? You apply it because your understanding of the one that you're in relationship with has improved. And if I understand a little more about him, then hopefully I can get a little closer to him. So there is always application if you look for it. Amen. Great services, podcasts, DVDs, all make it possible for us to enjoy good preaching. We have never had access to good preaching like we do in this day and age. But good preaching, really good preaching, I don't mean really as an extra good, I mean as in that is actually good preaching, should put me on my face. It should drive me to my closet of prayer and cause me to want to be changed and to produce the change that God wants in my life. That's what good preaching should do. Not every service. I'm not saying every service should put us on our face, but a tangible response to the ministry of God's Word is part of growing and part of overcoming your flesh because you're feeding one man and starving the other one. And that's how you're going to overcome. Amen. Bless the Lord. There's a reason that James said, receive with meekness the engrafted word. Why did he say that? Because when the word of God confronts us and challenges us, meekness is not your default reaction. It's not mine either. The default reaction is... I can't hold that for too long. The default reaction is, who do they think they are telling me what to do? Who is that preacher telling me that I need to change, that God is not happy with me, that my sin will take me to hell? Who is that person? That's flesh. Go back to the Old Testament. You find the story that many of us learnt in Sunday school about Naaman, who was an ungodly man who got leprosy, but Naaman was fortunate to have a godly servant in his house who said to him, there's a prophet in the next country, if you'll go see him, he might be able to heal you from leprosy. So Naaman, natural thinking Naaman, loads up his entourage with all these goodies and presents to impress the prophet. And when he gets there, I don't know what Elisha was doing. Maybe he was halfway through shaving. Maybe he was still doing his morning devotions or finishing his breakfast, but he would not even come out and talk to him. He sent his servant out and said, uh, man of God says, go and dip seven times in the Jordan River. And, and Naaman's thinking, I came all this way for this? I got all dressed up? I brought all the presents to impress the man of God? I thought that he would come out and do something dynamic and supernatural, but he sends me a message through his butler? And Naaman became swollen with pride and indignation. Got up in his chariot and stormed off in a huff. Fortunately, he had another servant who said, Sir, or boss, or master, whatever he called him. Just very, he was scared to, you know. He said, if he'd asked you to do some really hard thing, would you have done it? 
And he said, yes. He's like, well, basically, he said, well, what have you got to lose? What have you got to lose? And Naaman's ego deflated back to its usual size. And they went to the river. And he was probably muttering and grumbling under his breath, stupid, dirty river. It's muddy. It's not even nice. Blah, blah, blah. He went in there, dipped once. See, told you this was a dumb idea. And we know finally he dipped seven times and his skin became like a new baby's. Because some, you know, he needed some help, but eventually he got to the point where he received the word of God with meekness. And because of that, he was blessed by the change that the word was designed to bring. And so when the word of God comes and it's strong and it's hard sometimes and it cuts, your natural reaction is to swell up and say, who do you think you are? But James said, if with meekness we will receive the engrafted word of God, it will be able to do what God wants it to do. That's why he went on to say, but be doers and not just hearers. Because hearers are the ones that say, who does that preacher think he is? Doers are the ones that say, I want what God wants in my life and receive the engrafted word with meekness. Amen. Good preaching is preaching that brings change. Amen. Now when I mentioned, and I'm nearly done, when I mentioned the list of the works of the flesh, and the things that we should separate ourselves from, in Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians, and how we would benefit from considering the meanings of those words and examining ourselves. I don't want to see hands, but how many of you actually thought, I might do that? I don't want to see hands, I think I just said. <laughs> That's okay, there's a couple. Don't take it personally. You see... If we do not invest the time and the energy to apply the Scripture to our lives, if we don't view preaching as being purposed to transform, and I don't take the time to allow the Word of God to become a part of me, then I don't have time to be victorious. And I don't have time to be an overcomer either. One of the downsides of the amazing access that we have to ministry nowadays through the internet and DVDs and all the other things I mentioned, podcasts and what have you, is that we are spoon-fed. We just press play, plug in, show up, listen, and go on our merry way. There is, and I may be wrong on this, but there is a absence or even a famine of people getting into the Word of God themselves getting into the Scripture, spending some time studying the Word of God, looking at things, digging into things, wanting to know more, asking questions. Now, preachers do it, but that's because preachers have got to preach. But what about just as saints, each of us? Where, what's our diet like of the Word of God? How much time do you spend? I'm not saying you should go from nothing to 12 hours a week. But when was the last time you thought, I want to know more about that? Got into the Word of God yourself, rather than went to YouTube and said, I wonder what Brother Woodward has to say about this subject. He's a great teacher. I get that. But there's something in the action of digging in the Word of God yourself. My mother, and she's not here, obviously, so I have no desire to embarrass her, but my mother is 
in my opinion, a wonderful woman of God. But I have seen the notebooks and the big books and the hours and hours of study and things that she's dug into and brought out from the Word of God. And she hardly ever stands and teaches. You were here when she taught just recently. She was terrified. But because of that, there is a depth in her relationship with God. There are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. If you want to overcome your flesh, if you want to be victorious, you've got to go through the pathway of prayer and of being in His Word and letting it transform us. There is no other way. There's no just download it or take two of these. It just doesn't work like that. Amen. And too many of us are not overcomers because we come for service and we're blessed. But then Monday through Saturday, where are we at? 1 Corinthians, and I'm coming to a close. You don't have to turn there. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. And he said, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto or up till this point you're not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. Corinth was a place where their experiences with God were awesome. The gifts of the Spirit were in operation. The miraculous, the supernatural was taking place. Powerful moves of the Holy Ghost. But it was also a church without wisdom, without maturity in its individuals and in its relationships with God and with each other. And Paul said, because of that, you're still on the bottle when you should be able to have steak by now. Now, there's nothing wrong with babies being on milk. Babies are meant to be on milk. If you're a young Christian, you're the, you start out with the basic principles of God. That's biblical. But if you've got a full set of teeth and you're still drinking milk out of a bottle, something's wrong. Something's not right. Something needs to change. There should be a desire in us for more. You know, when you, when you, you get little infants, you know, when they're, they're newborns and they're, they're, they're fed with milk, they're not interested in anything else. But you watch that little baby become, you know, maybe six months old, maybe nine months old. You put that chubby little thing in a high chair and you give it milk while you've got something else. What do they do? They start going. They start looking at what you're having and wanting what you have. That ought to happen in the church of God. After we've been on milk for a while, there should come a point where we need to be able to look around, not comparing ourselves and say, I want some more of what that brother has or some more of what that sister has. I, this milk is good, but I want something to get my teeth into. Bless the Lord. Stand with me this morning if you would. Thank you for your patience. I know I've been a little long. Grace teaches us, according to Titus, that we can live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. But there's a reason that before those words it says we must deny ungodliness and worldly lust. We've got to overcome our flesh. Let's pray. Father,